Father, thank you so much for reminding us through the powerful words of those songs just what the debt is that we owe you. And Lord, not just the debt, but the great hope that we have because of what you've done for us. Father, I pray that we would bear those things in mind as we listen to what your word has to say to us today. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, um, we're back in the book of Ephesians today, chapter 1. If you could please turn there now. And Rosalie, I think it's probably appropriate to get rid of the fish now. Go on, be gone. And um, in that first sermon, we covered a little bit of Paul's life when we looked at verses 1 and 2. One of the important facts that we established was that what he was writing didn't come from him. It was much more important because it came from the very word, the very mouth of God, using Paul's hand. So we were challenged right from the very beginning to take those words seriously. And with that reminder, let's carry on to see what God's word has to say to us today. Now, have any of you been to this place? Oh, lots of you have, so, so you know what it means. Oh, that's disappointing. Well, let's just flick up the next slide, and you'll see it has rather an interesting meaning. The summit where Tamatia, the man with the big knees, the climber of mountains, the land swallow who traveled about, played his nose flute to his loved one. Now, don't ask me what a nose flute is, but I have heard some elderly gentlemen making strange trumpeting noises in their hankies. I've never figured out how they do it. Now, you will find tomata, and that's what the locals call it. They shorten it for obvious reasons. It's a few k's southwest of Havelock North. And its relevance to our text today is that it is, as you can see, a bit of a mouthful. In fact, it's the longest place name in any English-speaking country. And we, too, are confronting a mouthful today, but of Greek. Now, some of you will know that the next 12 verses of Ephesians were actually written as one sentence with 202 words, which, as we all know, means it should be read in one breath. So who's going to give it a crack? No, I didn't think anybody would. Actually, these long sentences are a bit of a feature of Ephesians, and we can find them in seven other places throughout the book. And thankfully, these long sentences, in particular this one, They've been chopped up into verses and themes and punctuated in modern times so that we can understand it. But that's not to say that the meaning has been changed at all. It has some notoriety amongst Greek scholars, apparently, because one fellow is quoted as calling it the most monstrous sentence conglomeration that I have ever encountered in Greek. <laughs> it's quite a beauty. So, you will be happy to hear today that we're only going to deal with verses 3 to 6. They carry an exciting message. It's a fantastic message, and it is an amazing message. They tell us that we have a gift. Open the gift and see what God has done for you, and then move out in faith and lay hold of it and live today on the high plane to which God has brought you. He's made you a son, and he has blessed you with all spiritual blessings. We need to live like that in the world today. So... Let's read what Paul has to say, Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, 
according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. That is the official Baptist method of reading, isn't it? Do you think Paul might have done it like that? No, I don't think he would have. I think Paul was very excited. This is a, this is a fulsome eulogy of praise that he's coming out with. So I think he might have read it something like this. He would have gone, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the Beloved. Paul exposes to us very openly here the depth and the amount of gratitude in his heart for the blessings of grace. We don't usually see people like this. Most often our real emotions are hidden behind that carefully constructed image that our culture expects. And unfortunately, because we continuously live with this muted picture, it begins to define what we really are. We lose that ability that was given to us by God to publicly respond to him in the depth that his gift of salvation really demands. Paul's genuine passion challenges right at the beginning to ask, how do I really feel about God? Do I want to bless him? Do I fully realize what he has done for me? You know, there are often moments when I sit here in church and I hear some profound truth. And I feel that what I ought to be doing is jumping up and shouting, yes, and punching the air. But then my good Baptist Anglo-Saxon training takes over and I just sit there po-faced. Do you sometimes feel like that as well? I don't think Paul was that restrained. Okay, well, let's let's start digging into this. Let's let's start by looking at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, see I'm back to it already, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. When we speak of God being blessed, we need to clearly understand what that means. The Greek word that Paul uses has the idea of somebody who is deserving of appreciation, honor, and praise. And it's not applied as a kind of a wish. Hey God, thanks for everything. Hope you'll be having a good time as well. Okay? It's not like that. God is blessed because he is. He is deserving of appreciation, honor, and praise. Not least of all because he has blessed us first. Talk about Christmas presents. Our spiritual blessings are like Christmas, birthdays, wedding anniversaries. In fact, all of our celebratory moments in all of our life roll together into one. Surely in the light of that, we, like Paul, should be living enthusiastically and passionately. Isn't that a way that we can be an image of God to those around us? Now notice how these blessings aren't earthly. If we have a look at the Old Testament and the rewards that could be expected there, a faithful and obedient Jew, well, he was rewarded with a long life, he would get a large family, abundant crops, and protection from his enemies. 
Okay, that's all stuff that was here on earth. We look at Christianity, on the other hand. Our blessings are all spiritual. That is, they deal with treasures that we cannot see or touch, and also they will never wear out. Moreover, these blessings are the same for every person since we have all started from the same place of sinful separation from God. Since we are in essence creatures of spirit, what value would we get in eternity from material blessings? What we really need are those marvelous spiritual blessings that Paul is talking about. Why is it significant that blessings, those blessings are held in the heavenly places? Well, if somebody came to me and told me that my spiritual blessings were kept down in a box at the corner dairy, or maybe in the bank, or maybe in somewhere really secure like Fort Knox, well, I'd actually be pretty unimpressed, you know, because these are really valuable things. And I know that everything on earth wears out, and that also people cannot be trusted. If, on the other hand, they are kept in heaven with Christ, then the first thing I know is that they are perfect, because nothing imperfect could ever share the same space with a perfect God. I also know that they are truly secure, because... No man or no physical or even spiritual power can ever compete with God's power to take them away from there. And also know that God's word is absolutely reliable. If he says that they are there and they are mine, then I can rest assured that they absolutely are. Are you starting to get some idea of why Paul was so excited? These amazing things. Well, what are these blessings exactly? We're not going to cover all of them today but they start to be exposed in verse 4, and we'll continue to to see them through to verse 14. And the the first one we'll look at is in verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. This is an astonishing gift. How is it possible that we, who are just full and riddled and oozing with sin, could ever be holy and blameless before God. John, have you ever seen an old tractor that cleans itself? You know, you leave it in the forest, and when you come back in the morning, it's perfectly clean. No, no. Parents, have you ever had a three-year-old that was standing within six kilometers of some mud and wasn't covered in it? No? No? I was just thinking that's quite close, you know, (laughs) for a (laughs) three-year-old. Or maybe maybe housewives. Well, I suppose I can't speak just to housewives. That's because I do this as well. I mean, you cook something. The pan is filthy. No worries. You stick it in the cupboard in the morning. You come back. It's perfectly clean. Never. Never happens, okay? The foul thing cannot make itself physically clean without some external influence. And it's just the same with sin as well. We are born in sin, and we will live in sin, and we will die in sin. We are very thoroughly soaked in it. And before a holy God, we have no answer. But God in his great mercy and love made a way for us to be clean through the death of Christ on the cross. More than that, he chose us. Not yesterday, but before the world was laid down or had any existence. 
before the foundation of the world, he chose us, as it says in verse 5, having predestined us in adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Okay, now I've used the dreaded P word, the predestination word. Okay, we need to go on to talk about this because for many of us, and that includes me before I did the preparation of the sermon, it's a very, very difficult word to digest because it seems as though it takes away our freedom of choice. And I think for most average people, this is a bit of an insult because we like to believe that the only person in charge of me is me. Okay? We don't want to be seen as anybody's puppet. But I hope and I pray that as we discuss what God's sovereign choice really means, that we will be comforted and blessed in the knowledge of our choosing, of our predestination by God. When I was at primary school, I was one of those fellows who wasn't very good at sports involving a ball. So at break time, we had that little ritual that I'm sure lots of us are familiar with, where the most sporty fellow, or perhaps the fellow who owned the ball, got to choose the teams. Okay, And I was most often the last guy to get chosen in the opposing team. That, that never felt good. And that's the kind of memory that many of us have about choosing. And that causes us to think, well, what questions might we have about a theological doctrine that fundamentally revolves around choice? Will it hurt some more? Or are we going to find comfort in knowing that in Christ we were the first to be called? In fact, so first that we didn't even exist yet. Well, let's see. The first question concerning the doctrine of election or predestination is whether it has strong scriptural support. It does. There are lots and lots and lots of very clear references to it. And these are just a couple, okay? Uh, firstly, 2 Thessalonians 2. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because, be- because God, from the beginning, chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. See how it says God chose us from the beginning. Secondly, 1 Peter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now this particular translation talks about something called the elect. And you might have noticed a little while back I talked about election or sanctification. Although these are actually different Greek words, they can effectively be interchanged, and they mean the same thing. To be specific, election is the doctrine that before the foundation of the world, God chose certain people to be saved. Okay, Before the foundation of the world, God chose certain people to be saved. And predestination is the doctrine that God foreordained certain individuals to be saved. Now, it seems to me to be a bit like staring at a football from different sides. It's still round and it's still a football. There's no real difference between these two doctrines. It's just a difference in the words used to describe them. Now, it would be dishonest of me not to mention that if, uh, 
if you are of an Armenian or hyper-Calvinistic persuasion, then you're going to think differently. Um, I'm sorry, but I don't want to cloud an already complicated matter by explaining those positions as well, because, in fact, they aren't really in line with the main belief in our church. Okay? I respect your opinion, but I'm not going to explain it. One of the next questions that may spring to mind once we accept the idea of predestination, okay, that is, if God has chosen some people to be saved, does it also mean, on the other hand, he's chosen some people to be damned? Short answer, no. You are a horrid man. Get out. <laughs> this is not a teaching we will find in the Bible. God never chooses men to be lost. They do this for themselves by their own unbelief. What does the scripture say? John 5.40 You search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. John 3.18 He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed it in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Okay, we're talking about those choices that we're making about belief. If we by our free will choice do not believe or come to Christ, then we're going to have the just desserts for that choice. God didn't choose that for us. We did. Okay? The doctrine of election lets God be God. He is sovereign. That is, he can do as he pleases, although he never pleases to do anything unjust. If we were left alone, we would all be lost. Does God not have the right to show mercy to some? After all, he is God. He is the one who made us, the creator. As I've already said, a lot of our resistance to this doctrine comes from our dislike of the idea that we have no free will. And as I've been talking about, that's not true. In the same way that we can find lots of scriptures about election, we can also find scriptures about human responsibility and the consequences of our decisions. Here's a few from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Joshua 24. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day who you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Mark 16.16 He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Romans 10.9 if you confess with your mouth that the Lord, the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Yeah. Can God force us to choose to believe? Of course not. It wouldn't be right. It's unjust. It is a free will decision and no one can use the doctrine of election as an excuse for not being saved. God makes a genuine offer of salvation to everyone. Everywhere. And we know the verse very well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
I'm going to skip the next verse at 2 Corinthians because we're, we're getting by on time here. But you can see that the language is general. Okay, the word all, 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 anyone can be saved by repenting of his sins and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, if a person is lost, it is because he chooses to be lost, not because God desires it. The fact is that the Bible teaches election and free salvation to all who will receive it. And we can see that because we will find both doctrines in a single verse. John 6.37 For all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Okay, can you see the first half of the verse speaks of God's sovereign choice, the one the Father gives to me, and the last half offers the, offers the mercy to all who will come. Okay, all who come to me I will by no means cast out. And when we sit and reflect on this, we're going to come up with a great difficulty in our minds. How can God choose some and yet offer salvation freely to everyone? We don't know. Frankly, it's a mystery. But the mystery is on our side. It's not on God's side. God knows how it works. And sometimes we just have to trust him. The best policy for us is to believe both doctrines because the Bible teaches both and therefore God teaches us both. The truth is not to be found somewhere between election and God's free will. They are both absolutely true. But how they can be reconciled, no man can say. Before I move on, I want a very quick recap so that the basics are clear in our minds before I discuss the practical implications of predestination. So, firstly, we might not like the idea of predestination, but it's a fact. Okay? There's a bunch of scriptures to confirm it. Secondly, God may have chosen some folk to be saved, but that doesn't mean that he has also chosen some people to be damned. Thirdly, all people, all people have the possibility of salvation and the free will to choose this and other courses of action. And lastly, both election and free will are true, but nobody knows how they work together. At the beginning of this explanation of predestination, I said that I hoped you would be comforted, not outraged by it. Why? Because God means it for you to be comforted. I think most of us here knows verse 28 in Romans 8, okay? And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called, that's speaking of those predestined, according to his purpose. It's very familiar, isn't it? And we can see that the called are the elect, but what's going to happen to them? We all know verse 28, we all remember it. But what did verse 29 and 30 say? For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Who he called, these also justified. And who he justified, these he also glorified. Folks, Paul is talking about us here. Okay, Paul is making the point that God has always acted for the good of those that he has called to himself. 
And if he worked in the past for your good, surely that means, as verse 28 says, that he will continue to do so. We know that all things work together for good. All things have have previously worked together for good. They are working together for good now, and they will work together for good, for the elect, for the predestined. He has called you, so it means it for your good. He meant for you to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be justified. Remember, a quick, what's a quick way of remembering what justified means? Just as if I had never sinned. Just as if we had never sinned. And because we are justified, we can look forward to eternity in heaven with God to be glorified. Is that good? It's good. And that's straight from the doctrine of predestination. Next, predestination is a reason to praise God. If we read verses 5 and 6 of our key passage today, we will see having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Why are we saved? We are not saved because of anything good in us, but rather it is that God has done everything for us and he chose to do that even before we arrived on the scene. There can't be any possibility of any pride on our part for our position. Only praise for him. Our election holds every reason to praise God. Lastly, predestination encourages us to evangelism. Why would I say that? Well, 2 Timothy 2.10 says this. And it's Paul speaking. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. Paul recognizes that if God has chosen a bunch of people for salvation, then they must be hanging around somewhere near him, waiting to hear the gospel. He doesn't know who they are, so he must speak to everyone. I got this great quote. You know, somebody came to Spurgeon one day and said, Mr. Spurgeon, if I believed as you do, I would not preach like you do. You say you believe that there are the elect, and yet you preach as if everybody can be saved. Spurgeon's answer was, they can all be saved. If God had put a yellow streak up and down the backs of the elect, well, I'd go up and down the streets lifting up shirt tails to find out who had the yellow streak up and down his back. Then I'd give that person the gospel. But God didn't do that. He told me to preach the gospel to every creature and that whosoever will may come. That is our marching order, and that means that until God gives us the roll call, the elect, or we pass on to glory, then we must preach the whosoever will gospel. So predestination, to sum up, it comforts us, it gives us reason to praise God, and it gives us reason to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. I reckon that means it is a doctrine that is worth embracing, not avoiding. I can't finish, though, without asking you 
and I'm going to point at you like that famous Lord Kitchener poster, bearing in mind the three fingers pointing back at me. I'm going to ask you, what are you going to do with what you have learned today? Are you excited and passionate about what God has done for you? For all the blessings he has given you in heaven, will you praise him more? Will you share his good news with your neighbour? Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would give us some real sense of exactly what it is you've done for us. Because I think sometimes it's so big we just can't even grab hold of it. If we grab hold of any of it, Lord, we would see that what you have done is just amazing. And Lord, I pray that out of the understanding that your Holy Spirit can give us, that we would be excited and passionate and that we would go out to live our lives in the way that you call us to. Being an image of you to those around. Speaking of your good news to those around, Lord, so that whosoever will may come. May come to you and be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. I mean...